So I've hit record and we'll just kind of get her done real quick here. So, hey everybody, thanks for listening. This is the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, episode eight. I'm Brian Beasley and with me is my partner, Dan Albert. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. In episode one, when we started this podcast, Dan, we said we were going to uh, not only give people information to help them and give them some perspective to help them make better financial decisions, but also uh, introduce them to other financial professionals. Yep, shine a light. Shine a light on them a little bit. And uh, there are many other financial professionals that people interact with that have fiduciary responsibility besides financial advisors. And uh, in this episode, we had a great visit with one of my personal friends, Kevin Camden. Kevin is an experienced attorney in Northern Illinois and has a varied background. He's practiced lots of different areas of law. And uh, in in this episode, Kevin gave us a lot of insight on not only his background, but uh, specifically things like real estate, estate planning, and really how to get the most out of any attorney that you're working with. So um, without any further ado, so, Kevin, thanks for coming out. My pleasure. So, as we're, uh, is, well, how can people get to know you? You know, what's, we want to know something about Kevin Camden, about, you know, where you come from and, and, and how you arrived at where you are today. Can you? Sure. I think um, my webpage, honestly, is as good a place as any uh, to start. And I'll add some more elements to that as well. I have a lot of my background on the webpage because I do think that it's important when you're trying to both attract and retain clients that they have some sense of who you are. You know, at last count, there's close to 100,000 attorneys, I think, licensed in Cook County. Layer on another 50 or 60,000 in DuPage, and you see you know, there's a multitude of choices out there. And I think people identify best with folks that have some human element. Now, you're not going to get my family's entire history from the webpage, but it paints a picture of who I am and what I've done. Uh, by way of thought process, I think if you follow at Kevin Camden ESQ on Twitter, you'll see things that kind of pop into my mind that professionally are interesting, ranging from economic forecasting to some of the, you know, cross-posting some of the stuff that I see from you, Brian. Um, particularly Zero Hedge. I'm not sure how much of it is always true, but I'm intrigued by the the other side of the story sometimes that you see there that the other me- that other media elements don't ever even bother to report. And then finally, um, I think when you sit and talk with me, if you're a client or a prospective client, I tell it like it is. And I'm not going to waste your time or your money, and I'm not going to waste my time in getting involved in things that aren't interesting and certainly not professionally by way of responsibility, things that I'm competent to do. So having given you all of that background, you know, at the end of the day, I was a fortunate kid who grew up on the southwest side of the city near Midway Airport, attended Catholic grade school and high school. At the time, um, the city of Chicago schools didn't have many magnet schools and their reputation, frankly, and I'm talking late 70s into mid 80s, uh, you know, public school wasn't really an option if you lived in the city. My dad was a Chicago policeman for 38 years and we did live in the city. So the option was stay in the city and go to Catholic high school, which I, I was thrilled to do. I enjoyed my upbringing. Uh, I went to Brother Rice High School and then went on to Northern Illinois University. 
came home after I graduated with honors in 94 and lived with my grandfather while I attended John Marshall in the Loop, uh, which is now, I guess, not I guess, is now the University of Illinois Chicago John Marshall Law School. But for those of us that were there in the sort of Marine boot camp days when it was just John Marshall, um, it was a miserable experience. People ask me all the time, what, what was law school like? <laughs> and I, you know, my hat is off to any veteran. I've never gone through basic training, but on a professional basis, uh, the only profession I've ever heard talk about their training and not even the licensing, but the training uh, is accountants and, you know, the, the, the exams that they have to go through. Um, if you've ever saw the movie Paper Chase, it was very much like that in law school. You know, your classmates would sooner stab you in the ear with a pencil than you know, even g give you a hint at what a correct answer may be. Um, and a lot of law school is made theoretically to train you how to think. I'm of the opinion personally that a lot of law school is vanity and abuse by some of the professors because they can. And the expectation used to be, and I, and I, I very clearly say used to be, because as I was in law school in the late 90s, the world was changing all around us in many ways, but not the least of which practice of law, um, the big firm. So, for example, you know, it used to be if you did well in law school, got hired in with one of the big firms like, you know, Alzheimer and Gray, you had the world by the keister. You know, you'd work your way up to partnership. You'd retire in your early 60s. You'd sell your equity membership back. Um, and then Alzheimer and Gray went up or went under, as it probably is more accurate. And other big law firms started going down. And then we got into the, the kind of bastardization of what a law practice was. You, you were, we have characterizations now of equity and non-equity partners and all of these other things. At the same time, you were seeing, although we didn't know it at the time, but later in life when I worked as a general counsel, it used to be big companies like Ford would hire a firm and they would do everything. Well, that's not the case. And frankly, it hasn't been the case for most of my career. We've moved away from, I was licensed in 97. We've moved away from big general practice firms that do a little of everything to very discrete niches and lawyers that may even only within the confines of a particular project uh, the, the concept of a limited scope engagement has developed. So you might be a patent attorney, for example, and you might not work through the entire process. You may work with a couple of engineers. They'll put the application together, but you only work with the, the PTB, the Patent and Trade Bureau, when they reject, which is not uncommon in the initial application, and you buff it up. Um, we tend to see fewer and fewer one-stop shops and much more, hey, Kevin does real estate. Let's call Kevin. Uh, Kevin also does other things in his practice, but we, I'm seeing more in the practice of a, of a much clearer focus. In Illinois, we can't say, and you won't see this, but I'm holding my finger up for air quotes, specialize, but you'll see many lawyers that will say things like we focus in a particular area. The other thing that I think has changed much more for the better, we're better as a profession about learning how to practice. Lawyers, doctors, and accountants, or lawyers and doctors in particular, having represented both of them, tend to be very poor business people. And it's interesting that you spend the kind of time and just ridiculous amounts of money to get licensed only for people to tell you once you get your license, well, you're really not qualified to do anything. 
it's in most other areas of life we'd say well that doesn't make sense if i go to trade school and i want to be a mechanic uh, you don't graduate and have a dealership tell you well you don't know what you're doing it's oh you're licensed and you can do this and i bring that up because it's the world as i was explaining to a younger lawyer earlier this week when i was in law school in the late 90s laptops were still a novelty and it was my second year in law school when as a requirement for a class we had to send an email to another student now there are those of you that are significantly younger than the three of us sitting in the room listening to the podcast thinking how did the world survive before Al Gore invented the internet? Well, we did, you know, and we also had things like fax machines and paper copies, things that we don't see much of. So the practice yeah, has I remember evolved. going to computer labs at U of I. Right, exactly. When I was at Northern, same thing. Um, you know, you had floppy disks and you'd pay by the page to print and all this other stuff. And in a lot of ways, particularly at the, the point in time we're at in the world now, um, we've demonstrated, I think, as a profession – we can do particularly well without a lot of the old trappings. Um, it used to be, you know, when I started practicing 25 years ago, when you walked into an office, you'd see the shepherds, the Northeastern reporters, and all the bound volumes. And now, even the big companies, LexisNexis, so those Bloomberg, were like all the all the law books that you'd have as right. a resource, like the big library, right? And the big firms and like spent that. crazy money every month to update all the reporters. Well, now. Everything's online. It's not any cheaper, but at least it's available online, which really, I think, translates to, at least for my client base, it, a lower cost of doing business and much lower overhead for us. For the last five years um, since I left a general counsel role, I've been practicing, pr practicing predominantly in the real estate area and moving into estate and trust work as well. And so much of what I do has been, quote unquote, in the cloud since 2015. So in mm -hmm. spring of this year, when everybody was working from home, that's like, you know, any regular Tuesday for me. It's, it had been that <laughs> way for a long time. And I think that's good because it makes the, the, the cost of lawyering lower, which should by extension make the cost of using a lawyer less. And more importantly, it allows for things like virtual meetings. If I had several older clients that were uncomfortable meeting in person, which I completely understand over the last few months. So we do a Zoom or, you know, as the world used to call, a telephone call. You know, mm -hmm. there's still some, some merit to doing those sorts of things. So we try and meet clients where their needs are um, on occasion. And in fact, I just did it earlier this week. I'll pick up documents from older clients if they have a hard time getting around for purposes of notarizing or other things. And I guess... You know, that's an insight not only into my personality, but how we run the practice as well. We try and make ourselves accessible. Um, a number of the re realtor referral sources remark that they can always get a hold of me on the weekends. And I understand that. Most realtors work on Saturday and Sunday. And if you have a question about something, you don't want to wait until Monday if you're, not af if you're afraid that you're going to lose a deal on Saturday. So while I tend not to work in the traditional sense all weekend, I am available as necessary. And I'm, I'm proud of the realtor partners that I have. They don't abuse that. They don't call and ask unnecessary or kind of foolish questions. They, they are generally very specific. Got it. Got it. Now, you're, what, what is the mix of your practice right now, roughly? It's, you know, it's in flux depending upon the time of the year. And this year is not a benchmark year for anything, but I'd say about 
a roughly two-thirds residential real estate. Um, and then of that remaining third, maybe 50% estate and probate practice, and then that other half of the third, corporate advising, corporate documents. Uh, so for example, this week, I just by way of dimension into my calendar, I scheduled several appointments for purposes of meeting to plan an estate. I have a client that has retained me to put together a serial LLC for multiple investment properties in Illinois. I had a closing um, that occurred while I was on my way up here because many of the title companies on the seller side are asking you to provide your documents in advance of closing to limit the mm -hmm. number of people mm -hmm. in a room. I've heard, uh, I've heard there've been some changes in the last few months you know, too, where like they're been... verifying employment, like the day of the closing or within 24 hours of the closing, that kind of thing. Let me come back to that because okay. the, the first question I want to answer is what's changed in closings. Um, what, what we've seen a trend toward and March 15 kind of is my line of demarcation when things changed since March 15th, most sellers are not attending the closing. And we'd seen kind of a creep towards that. Um, it's expeditious in a sense. And those of us that do residential real estate on a regular basis, it is more accommodating to scheduling. What we also saw, though, was a move towards social distancing in the sense of people being in their cars, signing loan documents. And I've not been oh, a big wow. fan of that. I've actually pushed back on some title companies where they wouldn't let me be in person in a room. The reality is, particularly for home buyer, first time home buyers, you get literally, we, we kill trees at an alarming rate in the real estate practice still, but you'll get half a ream of paper, which give or take is 250 pages of documents to review and sign. For the first time home buyer, it is a whirlwind. They don't understand what they're signing. And to try and suggest to them, you know, the 4506, for example, is a release of tax returns. I can tell them that all day long. But when they're sitting there literally shaking because they just saw how much they're going to have to pay back, it's comforting to have somebody there explain. Um, to the nuts and bolts side, Brian, to your question, the biggest change that we've seen is verification of employment up to three days post-closing. Um, post-closing. Yeah. The, Freddie and Fannie revised their guidelines a while back, and they imposed a 500 basis point hit on lenders if after the loan closed, a, a purchaser, so a, a mortgagor. Right. So 500 basis points for those people that don't know is half a percent. Mm -hmm. um, but I figured that was in your wheelhouse, so I'd leave that. <laughs> it's in mine. Um, <laughs> the, the, the half percent penalty if the purchaser took a, a, a um, abatement's not the word that I'm looking for, uh, took a forbearance in within the first two months payments. And as you can imagine, things have stabilized to a degree now, but back in April and particularly late March, April and for sure, we were seeing things like people were em employed on Thursday, had no expectation of being laid off, and then they'd go to work on Monday and they're gone. So what we saw crop up was a number of lenders asking, you know, have you taken any forbearance on your existing mortgage? Are you still employed? And the, the question I found curious, although I understand it, was do you have a reasonable expectation of remaining employed and at your current salary? Again, I think a lot of people had reasonable expectations that were sadly dashed. And I have not seen, nor have I heard, because I'm curious, professionally, I've not 
been made aware of any lender that's tried to claw back a loan as a result of somebody being terminated or losing their job or income afterwards. But it's added a little bit of apprehension. The biggest problem, and again, we're starting to see it ease, was the verification of employment. Because if I have to call Dan as an HR director at Acme Corporation, well, I've got Dan's office number. Where's Dan probably working from in March, April, and May? Not in the office. Right. Am I suggesting Dan can't call back? No, but it just complicates. The more hoops we have to jump through, the more difficult it is. So we saw a lot of delays in that regard. What I've also noticed crop up, um, particularly in the last few weeks, on FHA deals, the appraisals, because of a lack of comparables, mm-hmm. are coming in under value. I've had two deals, sadly, with the same investor client, where FHA appraisals have come in anywhere from about 4000 to 17000 under the purchase price. And it's so, in my opinion, it's solely related to lack of comparables because the market stagnated a little bit in, right. you know, as of March 15, any real estate attorney that I knew, we still had closing scheduled. We were not seeing new contracts come in. They started okay. to dribble in a little bit in April and in the early part of May, it, we saw a bit of an uptick. And then right around Memorial Day, things were picking up better. June was substantially better. July has been good, although I have had this conversation with some other colleagues. Not quite as good as June was. So we're, we're just curious to see how and, – and there's always an ebb and a flow with real estate. It used to be much more predictable mm-hmm. than it is now. Um, but provided uh, – provided markets remain the same. And I think they will, certainly through the presidential election, by that I mean I don't see any wild interest rate increases, and I certainly don't see any decreases. No. Um, in early March, we saw, and I know I talked to enough lenders, the mortgage servicers, which is really the backbone of the mortgage industry, when rates were dropping below three, servicers backed out and said, we're done. We, we can't make any money on these deals. And that's why as rates were creeping, you know, if you remember, correct me if I'm wrong, we got to about what, two and a quarter at one point in March. Maybe it was two and a half, but yeah. that's sort of when the markets, when the, the mortgage market froze up because too many servicers were saying, we're done. We, we can't make any money at this rate. So actually what you had, and it's almost counterintuitive, but some of the big lenders were telling the Fed, go back towards that 3% rate because any you get much under 3 there's no liquidity for, there's no profit for servicers. So I think we'll stay there. I've seen fantastic rates in the last six weeks. I saw, for the first time in my professional career, a 30-year fixed conventional at 299. Um, wow. I saw one earlier this week, 30-year fixed at three and a quarter, which is still outstanding. Um, so I, by way of, you know, for what my nickel's worth of forecasting is, I think that's going to continue. Uh, what I'm curious to see having lived through, like you guys did, 08 to 10, we are going to have lost entire sectors of the economy. So the the, um, the hospitality industry, for example, is years away from coming back to where they were. I'm talking hotels, banquets, these sorts of things. And then you look at the restaurant industry. You know, it was it was there were two articles I've read probably in the last month. One, and I forget the name of the restaurant, but it was a three star Michelin rated, and Michelin ratings are worldwide. You can get up to four stars. Um, a three star New York restaurant said, "We're done. 
we, we can't we're out of the game we right, can't make right. any money and then just recently blackbird which is a one-star michelin that really started in chicago kind of the the foodie um, trend 23 years ago said we, we can't do this anymore we, we we only have 25 tables in the restaurant to begin with if we have to limit that to you know, back right, then right. the thinking was you know no more than 25 percent of capacity it, it just doesn't fly so i think a lot of bars pubs local restaurants if they weren't set to have takeout before early april which is when the governor kind of started to relax takeout mm -hmm. rules you couldn't flip a switch, right? You, you couldn't be your local neighborhood pub that had no takeout and then suddenly on April 1st say, okay, we have this internet presence and you can do online ordering. It's just, so that's, I'm curious to see what the shakeout long-term is going to be. Flip side, you kind of debating myself here, construction remains strong in the Chicagoland area. Thank God the trades were deemed essential and were able to continue working because those folks, and God bless them for doing it, uh, really helped the economy stabilize through late March, April, and May. Um, if you look at what GM and Ford reported most recently by earnings, you know, pickup truck sales were through the roof, and I think that's a direct correlation to trades being able to work and keep working. You know, when, they're, when the trades are working as a rule, the country's doing well economically. When we see stagnation with the trades like we did in 09 and 10 because nobody was building, uh, that's when I think we have more structural problems through the economy. Right, so right. from, I mean, from my low rates are really helping people afford housing. We're seeing a ton of refinancing, but the, if, if they can afford the housing and the other good, good news is that generally construction workers are distanced, you know, in this environment. So that's, that's been a, a, a good thing. I want to get back to you a little bit though. Um, just, just as people are looking at attorneys in general, you know, one of the things that we see is, there's a lot of misconceptions that I run into for, for my profession about what, what we, what Dan and I do. I got to imagine there's some misconceptions that you're aware of that are out there with working with attorneys for whatever you're going to use an attorney for. What are some of those misconceptions or myths and can you dispel some of those? I think one of the biggest myths is that if, if you as an individual hire an attorney that somehow that instills fear in your opponent or your adversary or whoever you're having a dispute with. The reality is having an attorney, um, not to diminish my own profession, but it in and of itself, it doesn't mean much anymore. And it, uh, it in that regard, it, in... You're talking about the fear factor anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's very little. And to give you a little more dimension into my thought regarding practice, I often have clients call and say, well, how much would it cost for you to send a letter for X, Y, or Z? And I say, I won't do that unless you're committed to the next step. And, well, they say, well, what's the next step? I said, well, if you're threatening to sue somebody, if you want me to send that letter, you have to be prepared to file a lawsuit. Because once you send that letter or I send that letter and nothing happens, what, what does your neighbor who refuses to take down the fence that's over your property line, for example, think? Well, they think you were just bluffing. And the, the problem is, um, and maybe it goes to misperception, justice is expensive. And sure, courts are open. And yes, there are a lot of attorneys, but most of us don't do this for a hobby. And if I have to file a lawsuit, generally, my minimum request for a retainer is $5,000 because a, a fair third of that right off the bat is going to go into filing and um, 
service fees to the sheriff or a process server. And if it's a contested matter, so in other words, if you do want to argue with your neighbor about a property line, to lawyers, facts are expensive, right? If there's a fact dispute in a matter, you're going to spend a lot of money before you even get to a trial. And it's discouraging for folks, and I understand that, but there is a true economic reality to hiring a lawyer, and that is you've got to be prepared to go the distance. And I see that a lot in in a prior life. I did much more employment practice. The reality is the little guy, which is to say the employee, barring that employee being you know, a C-level officer, when the employer says you're fired, you've got very little to push back on. And I'm well aware of Title VII and discrimination and the Illinois Department of Human Rights and the Cook County Human Rights Ordinance and the Chicago Human Rights Ordinance. But the reality is, who's got all the money? And the answer is the employer. They can wait you out. So, you know, Dan, if your employer comes to you, which won't happen, but and says, we're giving you a six-month severance, and you say, that's not enough, I want more, are you really able to say, okay, fine, I'll wait it out? No, the reality is most, most people are pushed into having to accept the severance. And it's disheartening. It's one of the things I didn't like about employment law is, truthfully, it is kind of a lopsided system. And the, the larger employers that have the wherewithal tend to be able to do, and I'm not suggesting it's right or wrong, it's mm -hmm. just from an economic analysis, can tend to do more of what they want to do. So, Well, I've even seen a... a, a you know, from a from a litigation side, I've seen situations, you know, where an attorney who doesn't have to hire another attorney has a lot of power to wield as a plaintiff compared to the person who has to defend their good name. Correct. And, you know, you have a frivolous lawsuit here and there. And after a while, you just have to settle, settle, settle immediately because the cost of defending your good name could be tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And that can be a real, real challenge. So, um, you know, but but the, the idea you know, the other, I think the other thing that um, you know, people have a, a, an idea in their head that attorneys in some way are, you know, all attorneys, they paint, you know, everybody these days is painting with a broad brush. All advisors are this. All insert group here is, is this other thing. And when it comes to attorneys, the bad rap is that, that is in spite of all the ethical requirements to keep your license, there's a sense that you know, attorneys are cutthroat, ruthless, soulless um, humans, and and I I I think that may have may just come because there's a there's a fierce duty to the client to represent them and represent them well. Is that what your experience has been, or so two? Mis you run into that? Yeah, on that point, absolutely. Um, you know, when I engage a client, I've got an obligation to represent them zealously according to the canons. And you know, sometimes that means we take the human element out of it. If you have a contract dispute, I understand that there are personalities involved, and I get that. But the reality is we're focused on the substance of the matter and focusing on representing that's client, that client's interest. Now, many lawyers have different styles. Um, I tend to be one that self-selects my clients. It's a nice thing about having your own practice for a number of years. For claims that seem dubious to me or things that I believe are sketchy, I just won't, I won't take the work. Other lawyers may have less of a standard. I, don't, I can't say, give you a, an example for sure, but um, I have to represent my client's best interest. And sometimes 
that's difficult, particularly. One of the reasons I stopped doing divorce work as soon as I could was it, it was just human misery to me. When I started out practicing downstate, um, no matter how good, if there's such a thing, the case went, people were still unhappy. Now, folks will say, oh, that my divorce is the happiest day of my life. I understand that, but I also understand that in the prior 18 months to get to that date, you were on the phone crying to me, which I understand. It's part of what we do. Mm-hmm. I just didn't like that area of law, and I got out of it. Right. I, I just it, it was I didn't feel good making money out of people's suffering, and it's one of the things that has changed. You know, ten, eleven, and twelve. A lot of real estate lawyers were making a ton of money on short sales and foreclosures. I fortunately never got into that, um, and I'm glad I didn't because now, as I tell people, almost universally. Both parties to a real estate transaction, a residential, are walking out with smiles on their face. You've got a happy seller, you've got a happy buyer, and we're away from just the sense of misery where people were bringing in huge checks to be able to get rid of, of their properties. Didn't you say earlier that most of your practice is real estate? It is. How, how did you get into the real estate? You know, it, it's curious, Dan. I, like I said, I'm licensed you know, close to 25 years. Initially, when I started with a general firm downstate, we didn't do a ton of real estate, but we did it, and I enjoyed it. I genuinely liked it, and I will both date myself and you know identify the size of the county where I was practicing. I practiced in Fulton County, and when somebody wanted to buy a house, we we me I would drive to the county courthouse, go to the recorder's office, and pull what's referred to as a track book, and do a property search the old-fashioned way by the property index number. And as I told people all the time, there were not many volumes in Fulton County. It was not a particularly populous place. Um, And I could generally trace the property back two or three generations to the original land grant from the United States of America. And I I enjoyed it. I mean, it was intellectually interesting, and I'm kind of a history buff, so you'd see, you know, you got a sense after a while when you were working with a, a, a... a kind of a distinct geographic area. Oh, that's the Beasley family farm that was broken up. And oh, that's right. And that used to be Beasley, but then it went to Abernathy and now it's a subdivision. I liked it, is the short answer. Um, what I like most now, and after I, I left my in house position in 15 and went back out on my own, um, it was a quality of life choice for me. I love representing police officers and union employees, but my children were at the age where. We could have a 3 o'clock soccer game. We could have a 9 p.m. soccer game. And it didn't lend itself to being a, a supervisor of up to five attorneys at one point, um, as well as managing a local, assisting the other folks. And my transactional practice allows for all of that. So I alluded earlier to what my practice has been for a long time. I do a lot of what I do sitting in the front seat of my truck or <laughs> on the couch or on occasion at a soccer game. And that's one of the things I love about my practice area. I can do that. While I never intended it, um, you know, knock on wood, it was also to a degree COVID proof because I'm not dependent upon courts being open. I am dependent upon recorder's offices being open, and we were fortunate that none of them closed, or if they did, for not very long periods of time. It's, it's portable. I, I've closed deals while I've been in France with my family on spring break. <laughs> I've been on the beach in Florida and closed deals. It's... That's what I really like about what I do, and that's why I stick with it. It's also challenging. The, the deeper I've gotten into real estate, um, 
if you do five or 10 deals a year, or maybe even 20, because it's something your firm does, yeah, you can learn some things, and you can be a, a very, very good lawyer doing it. When you do 250, 300 closings a year, like I have in prior years, you start to be able, if, you know, it's the 10,000 hour rule, right? If you've read any of Gladwell's right, stuff, right. you do enough and you can identify, okay, we know this is going to be a problem or here's an issue and I have this solution or we may have that solution. I like that. You know, most of the transactions are routine. I'd be the first to admit, um, but not all of them. And as I tell a lot of my potential clients and realtor partners, the difference between somebody like me who does closings five days a week, almost every week a year is when we hit that last minute snag, most of us, and it's a, it's a sizable group um, who do practice in the residential area on a routine basis, we can fix or we can come up with a solution to that so that we get the property closed, which means the realtors make money, which means the lawyers make money, and most importantly, you've got two sides to a bargain that get what they're looking for. If you don't close, if you don't do that on a regular basis, just like I don't practice divorce on a regular basis, which is to say not at all, I don't know what we can and can't fix at the last minute. So to a degree, there's a, a personal pride, professional pride, I guess, in being able to do that. And the other component... Well, that's a really good, I mean, it's a really good point you make. And that's that's true amongst all experts, you know, certainly within our industry, and is that it's the it's the stuff that you don't know that you don't know where people get into trouble and as somebody who's very very experienced who's acting on you know for someone else's best interest if they they provide speed and it actually can save money if you only have to close once and not two or three times and rescheduling and the delays of that and i can't imagine with a house situation where you've got people who maybe they sold their other house and they're buying this new house and they're they can't close they don't have a place to go they're planning on moving in this afternoon yeah that can those be a sorts real of things problem. happen more often than we'd like to see. We we work to try and avoid that. But one of the things, so you we talked about being a fiduciary, uh, you know, on behalf of the client. I'm sort of antiseptic. That's maybe not the right word, but not particularly emotional. And sometimes I think the misconception from the client is, well, you don't care. I care that you have personal feelings about. The, about the contract, for example. I know this is a house that you love and you have to buy it. But I'm telling you from a legal perspective, here are the concerns. And when you ask me, well, what should I do? I can't and I won't substitute my personal judgment because it's an emotional decision for you. I can tell you, you're buying a house that I think is overvalued, that you're looking at spending a lot of money to repair on an economic, on a dollars and cents, it makes no sense to me but you love the house and it may be a true one of a kind. I can't put, I can't monetize that. You can't put a value. Just the ability to be detached. Right. Can add tremendous value. You know, people get emotional about all kinds of things you know, yeah, all the, the time. And you, you've got to be able to check that emotion or check your ego. And to, professionally you know, though, it's hard as I tell people too, we, we want to see that emotion from, we want to be excited with the clients Things that seem like a big deal, again, you do enough, you see it on a regular basis, it's not a big deal. So you try and calm the client down, but they're really worried, and then it develops. Uh, professionally, I try and be very attuned to this. Again, I, you know, I 250 closings a year, you see a lot, so there's a lot that just kind of goes by that you don't get worried about. 
But most clients will buy a house every, I think the average is eight to 10 years. It's a big deal to yeah. them, right? When that first extension, right. if you're selling and that first finance extension request comes in, that is of course anymore. With limited exception, we What's get What's a that. finance extension again? So yeah. in your- I'm in one the, of those people. I haven't bought a house in 15 years. <laughs> in the, we use in this part of the state, the 7.0 uh, multi-state contract and- the contract has a 45-day financing contingency built in. It's boilerplate language. So what that means is if we're going to close September 1st, 45 days out from the acceptance date, you have to have your loan not approved because that's a term of art, but clear to close. Where the lender says, Brian, you're good to go. You can buy your house on October 1st or whatever date I Got gave. It. Oftentimes, when we're coming up on that finance and I've got three deals that I've got to attend to this afternoon, we're closing sometime next week. We still don't have the final clear to close from the lender. So mm -hmm. you send a letter or an email, in my case, to the other attorney saying, hey, we haven't met the financing contingency. We need to extend until Friday or Monday. And the reason we do that is if you don't, um, this is another one of those kind of red flags, if you don't make that request, the buyer is subject to losing the earnest money if you can't close the deal. So... A lot of things we want to be concerned about with respect to the financing, um, but I try and remember, your people are invested heavily, right? Between marriage, children, and buying and selling a home, you know, those are the big three. And sometimes I have to step back, like you're saying, and just say, okay, I get it. You haven't bought a home in 50 years, or you're well into your 80s. And you need a lot of help. And thank God for the staff that I work with because we can accommodate that. I will tell you personally, that's not my choice, but we have the staff to be able to help people through those crises. I much more prefer, and it's why I went back to my own practice, Dan, when I left the union. I like practicing or doing law. I like being in the closings. I like closing out the deals. I don't really like so much being on the phone, and I have to work on that, and I understand it's a personal <laughs> shortcoming. Um, but, you know, I like what I do, so... So when, when people are engaging an attorney, you know, for, in your case, like for real estate, what are some questions they should be asking you that maybe they don't think they, they should ask? You know, so if, I think the most important thing, especially if, you know, we'll look at the global at the 50,000 foot level, you're going to spend a fair amount of time with your attorney. On a real estate basis, we're limited, but if you're looking for litigation, if you're in an employment type situation, God forbid you're in a criminal, you better be able to get on with that person. And I'm not suggesting that you have to go out for drinks together every night, but you have to have somewhat of a relationship. And one of the things that I tell lawyers that work with me and younger lawyers that are asking for advice, you know from the get-go how you're going to fit with a client, or you should, certainly by the time you're my age. And there are red flags that I know that, that folks are not going to be a good fit for my practice. And diplomatically, we'll say, I think you need to go to Joe or Fred or Jane or Sally. They might be a better fit for you. Um, and I think professionally, it is incumbent on us. I don't want my clients to be... I mean, of course, everybody wants in today's lingo to get a five-star review, but we at least want to be able to get along and get what we need done. And if we can do it and everybody's happy, that's even better. But I think sometimes you need to be aware early on of what your style, what your personality is, and that cuts both ways. If you're, so for example, my staff knows um, our client 
our preferred client has to be email savvy or at least email accessible, preferably email savvy, because a lot of what we do is heavily document oriented and it's the most efficient way to email back and forth. Um, I know when we get into a certain age of folks that they're not going to be able to do that. And that raises a question of, okay, are, how busy are we right now? Can we have four or five phone calls a day to kind of nurse the deal through? So those are important for us to look at. Um, on the flip side, and it goes perhaps to some of the misconception stuff, Bri, everybody thinks lawyers are fabulously wealthy. And the Wall Street lawyers are fabulously wealthy. Um, your average lawyer, I, I make a good living. I'm not complaining, but it's not as though I go out on my 50-foot yacht every weekend and jet off in my private plane whenever I want to. You know, we're, I think, solidly middle class generally. When you look at the numbers that, like, the ABA puts out, you know, for every lawyer on Wall Street or, you know, corporate chief executive or chief legal counsel that's making multiple millions, there is a lot of lawyers that are lucky to make 50 grand a year. So law of averages says I, got, I have somebody that makes 2.5. I can have a whole bunch of folks making 50 or 60,000 and still have an on average salary of six or 700,000. The reality is it's just not there. The other not misconception, but the other expectation before somebody engages a lawyer is expect that we're going to ask for some for money, especially if it's a long-term project. So on, on projects where I'm setting up corporations, those generally are flat fee. Real estate closings tend to be flat fee. But anything litigation-based, you're going to have to have a retainer. And you should not be surprised by that. Um, most other professions, for example, and dentists do this fabulously well, you pay when you go to have your teeth cleaned or you pay for whatever, subject to insurance, of course. Mm -hmm. um, lawyers, and again, it harkens back to this idea that we're not good business people. Lawyers have tended for a long time to neglect billing. And I think as a profession, we need to be better about that. I try to get bills out if we've got extended engagements, at least on a monthly basis. And if it's a project basis, as soon as the project's done, we try and get the bills out. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of other things just for the initial interview. Um, is there how, a way to tr like, is there, I'm sorry, is there a way to evaluate and, f and search for attorneys? Like I know with, with brokers and advisors, you can kind of, there's a place to go on the sec or the, the, the FINRA's website to kind of evaluate work history, complaint history, that kind of thing. Is there a resource like that for? There is in Illinois, an agency created and subject to the control of the Illinois Supreme court is the Attorney's Registration and Disciplinary Committee, the ARDC. You can go to their webpage, search a lawyer by name, and see what their work history, not work history by way of where they've worked, but if there's any complaints, mm -hmm. what they were, what the disposition was. There are private marketplaces. You, Sullivan's was an old school um, legal directory. I don't know if they've gotten into ratings. I know there are things like AVO, A-V-V-O, where people can rate attorneys. Certainly there's Google My Business, and I'm proud to say I've got a 4.8 rating <laughs> with my reviews um, to check those sorts of things out. Redfin, I'm thinking more in the real estate area. Redfin is a real estate company that tracks and keeps ratings on other folks. But truthfully, um, at least in my world, and I think this tends to be the case 
for most lawyers, your best advertising are referrals from clients that you've worked with or people that you've, frankly, I've gotten clients over the years that were opposed to me and made, or in other words, on the other side of the table, so to speak, and they made referrals to people saying, hey, we work, you know, we were on the other side of Kevin, but it worked out pretty well. Um, and occasionally you'll see that. My experience is in the, in the time that we're living in now, Brian, the ARDC is almost an afterthought. It's more the online ratings and mm -hmm. what are people seeing. Got it, got it. So, you know, you've touched on a lot of this, but, you know, if somebody is working with you, is there anything else that they need to be thinking about to help them get the most out of working with with you? If, you know, we, we have... We have various client relationships on our side of things where um, people had the opportunity to be so much more efficient and get so much more value out from what they're paying us, and they're just not engaged in that part of the process. Is there are there, there some are, things like that? With there you? are a couple areas. Um, one is if if you've got if you have limitations. I have a handful of investor clients that are in Europe. Um, let me know on the front end that you know, I'm eight or 10 hours away. Is it okay if we talk at, you know, four or five in the morning, which is generally yes, because we tend to be early birds in our house hmm. versus 10 or 11 o'clock at night, which is a crapshoot if I'm still awake. So it's good to identify expectations on both sides. Um, when my office or if I email you and ask you for something, it's not because I think it might be helpful. It's because we need it. So for example, if I ask you to get a mortgage payoff, it's because I need it in order to be able to close your sale. It's not something that might be helpful. We expect you to, and it sounds dictatorial, but we expect you to follow our directions. Um, and no offense, but Google is not akin to my law degree. And if you're going to second guess, this goes back to you know the ideal client. If you're going to second second guess what my legal advice is, we're not we are not going to work together for long. You know, there's a reason you're coming to me. There's a reason I see a cardiologist if I have a, card, a heart issue. And I don't substitute what I read on Google this morning for what that person's knowledge is. Um, I also, it seems like we're trying to sell more services, but I wish clients would take a step back. And, you know, part of what I like about being an attorney is the counseling element. And folks will start to talk about trusts, for example, revocable trusts. And I'll say it would be easier if we set this up before we close on the property because then I don't have to reconvey and file with the recorder's office. Okay, okay, we'll get back to it. And they don't, and we miss a window, and then we come back to it, but it costs more. Um, with respect to my investor clients, I always suggest LLCs to hold, and I'm happy to go into that, but I always suggest if you're going to buy even one income or a rental property, set up an LLC. There are significant liability breaks that I think are beneficial. There's also, even though I don't practice tax law, there are tax consequences that could be favorable. And I get the head nodding, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. Well, then they don't. And then something comes up. Or, and this happened a couple of weeks ago, um, I act as a registered agent for a lot of clients. And they'll say, well, you know, do we need an attorney? Not really but I don't know how conversant you are with the act and all the things that you have a corporation or an LLC set up to avoid mm -hmm. are going to fall as soon as you don't follow the minimum requirements, not the least of which is having an annual meeting and having minutes of the meeting. 
and the people, much like um, Legal yeah. Zoom, people will come to me with a will and say, "Hey, I got this will, and that's awesome, and it got you eighty percent of where you needed to be." But it's not going to get you over the finish line. Um, and yeah, here's it, what it, 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 it you, you're talking about: your rental property. And I, I'm smiling because there's just, you know, when when I'm I'm involved in uh, discussions with investors online and social media and whatnot. I mean, rental property is like one of the big time, like most profitable things you can possibly do in, in their eyes. And it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And why would you do anything other than rental property? And the magic of it is from the leverage of the mortgage. That's where those returns come from. And what I try to implore to people is that this is not the same thing as point, click, and buy a security online like a mutual fund or a stock. This is, you're, you literally are, whether you know it or not, you're starting a business yeah. when you and, have rental property. And, and that, that complexity is lost on a lot of people on the front end because they just get you know, stars in their eyes thinking about the returns. And the fact is, is if you're going to start any successful business, with other people's money, your returns on that business are going to be fabulous, whether it's a law practice or an investment practice or whatever, because you didn't have to put your own money up, but it has to succeed. Yeah, just to be clear, for law practice, I can't have non-attorney partners, so I have to use my own money or at least my partner's money, but your point is well yeah. taken. Um, and the if you really get into this, and this is where I know some of my clients think I nerd out on it, but... If you are a full-time real estate investor, and it's a term of art under the tax code, there are fabulous tax gains that you can get when you're buying and selling rental properties, particularly if you set up with a multi-LLC, like I would suggest for many reasons, but not the least of which is liability shield, but more importantly, tax purposes. I had a, a realtor with a number of years of experience on, um, we did a Zoom interview and it's on my uh, Facebook page, Camden Law Office. And one of the things I said was, in a down economy, and I don't suggest for a second we're in a down economy, what do you think about investing in real estate? And the reality is very rarely, barring the mortgage debacle that we saw implode fairly recently, real estate tends not to lose money. It may not outpace the market by any means, but it tends to at least hold value. And then, Brian, if you layer on exactly what you're saying, the leverage of a mortgage and the, both tax consequences as well as just investment leverage there, you see how easy it can become to have multiple properties. And, and I'm not even talking buy and hold where you're a landlord. I'm talking either rehab or flipping or short term, whatever word you want to put on it. There's a ton of opportunities there. And much like you and other professionals that I work with, the, the serious investors, not the guys who just got a few bucks because mom or dad died and they want to go dump it in the house. The, the true investor that wants to be in it long term has a portfolio of professionals that's advising them. As you might imagine, I think lawyers are certainly at the head of that list, if not um, second, as well as financial and accounting, because it's not something you should do lightly. And as I tell investor clients all the time, you are going to have to evict a client. Just as an example, you're going to have to go through an eviction process if you want to be a landlord. It's not a question of if, but when. If you understand that, you know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, declination is not the right word, but their depreciation and at a certain point, yeah, the roof might look good, but if the roof is 50 years old, you probably need a budget for replacing that like now. And it's all of these little pieces. And 
back to Dan's question of earlier, one of the things I like about real estate is I learn a lot. I'm fortunate to work with investors and I learned, I learned something this morning when I was talking to a client that I didn't know. And that's the nice thing about, I don't want to say in a, in a sheltered practice area, but having that focus in a particular area, it's really interesting to me because I may come across another client who I can say, yeah, I actually talked to Dan this morning and he suggested that maybe you could try that and it may be valuable for that person. And that's, that's a role that I like to be in. It's, so it's, it's real estate in the more global sense, I guess, because we can pass along tips and other things. And as I learn things to, to come back to you know, client responsibilities and being a fiduciary, if somebody says, hey, we had this experience and you've got to look out for X or Y and I've not been prepared for X or Y, I'll talk with clients that I know might be exposed or might be looking at something and saying, hey, we need to look at this potential eventuality. It's come up. We need to stay on top of it. And that's exciting. I mean, for me, mentally and professionally, it's exciting. I learned several things uh, about mechanics liens this week that I was not aware of. And you think, well, you do residential real estate. Why is mechanics liens a big deal? Well, because if you're trying to sell a property and you have multiple liens on the property, I, as your seller's attorney, have to try and clear those. So we get into the weeds a little bit on things. Sometimes, like you guys, I expect, would do the same on clients' behalf with tax oh, 100%. issues. You're not tax advisors per se, but so much of what you guys do has just actual and then yeah, and you can avoid you can tax. avoid a landmine. A lot of what you're telling, what you're talking about, is an ounce of prevention. Yeah, is better than a pound of cure, and you're much better off, you know, having somebody say, "Hey, don't step over there." Well, and that's one of the areas that, um, you know, in the immortal words of Rahm Emanuel, don't ever let a crisis go to waste. One of the areas that we're expanding is the estate planning. And as we've seen through the spring, people are very concerned. You know, we're wearing masks, we're social distancing, we're doing the appropriate things. But then people are saying, oh, well, what about my kids or what about my parents? Yeah, what about your parents? If your mom and dad, like my folks, are in their mid-70s, do they have powers of attorney put together? Are you preparing them if, if something happened to one of my parents tomorrow, we could go to the bank. We could act on their behalf with doctors. There'd be no skip. There'd be no jump in their treatment. Other folks, they say, well, I have a will. And this perhaps goes back to the misconception. Oh, we question. hear that all the time. You I've have got a, a will. will. Yeah. That's awesome. And that gets you, again, about 80% over the finish line. Because here's the problem. Most people, now there are always exceptions, but I'm speaking more broadly. If you own property in the area where we live, the Illinois Probate Code says if you have more than $100,000 in your estate, you have to probate the estate. If you have a single-family home, if you got a couple bucks in the bank, you're going to be over that $100,000 threshold. So what's important to you? For personally, I like to give as little money to the government as I can. And I can sit with Dan and say, Dan, for this fee, depending upon what we need to do, we can set up a trust for you. It may make you avoid may make you Medicare eligible while still sheltering your assets, but it will certainly get you over a hurdle when you die. Your children might be able to sell your home if they don't want to live there. And here's a spoiler alert, folks. No kid wants the home that mom and dad were living in <laughs> where they grew up. Most of them want to sell it. Um, but most importantly, and I am as serious as can be about this, particularly with the aging of our population and the boomers, I can fix a lot of things. I can't fix if mom or dad have memory issues I can't give you a power of attorney because I'm going to sit with you. And again, this goes back to how do you serve your clients? If I'm sitting, it's only happened a couple of times in my career where I've had clients that I honestly felt 
didn't have mental capacity to sign a document. And it's heartbreaking when you have to tell a son or a daughter, I can't do this because I don't think mom or dad understands what's happening versus, Brian, what's, you know, who's the president? Who was the last president? What day of the year is it, right? And you answer all this just as an example. The point is, now Brian's got it squared away, and if, God forbid, you're out rollerblading tomorrow and you bonk your head and you can't make decisions, your spouse or your power of attorney can do that on your behalf. If it's not in place when mom finally can't remember who she is or where she lives, now we have to go through a guardianship proceeding. And the thing about this stuff is that this is the stuff that you know, you know, Dan and I have these you know, eight guidelines that when it comes to financial decisions. And one of them is you focus on controllables. And you focus, you know, we were talking about prioritizing, and you can focus on things that are either high probability, and that's where most people live, high probability. I'm going to take care of that thing because I'm 100% sure it's going to happen, so I, now, I definitely have to take it. But people really underestimate when something is a low probability but a high impact, they don't generally take care of that unless the law requires it. Like you, you have a mortgage, so you have to insure your home. Um, the odds of that home being destroyed in fire or storm or something is pretty low, but the impact is huge. So therefore you have to, people don't think about things like disability, long-term care, cognitive issues, those and you kinds can of put, things. And you can solve it so easily. And it's cost effective. We're not talking, look, and, and to be clear, uh, because I'm sitting with financial advisors, I am not a tax planning estate person. If you're above capital gains threshold, or as my rule of thumb loosely is, if you own more than two properties, I'm probably not your tax planner or your estate planner because you've got other issues to worry about. And you want to talk about low probability, high impact. If you've got a high net worth and I screw up your estate plan, you've got generation skipping taxes, you've got all these other things. And when I first started practicing, my my firm did that. And now and, you're not hitting the state tax really until into the millions of dollars well, of, but in a taxable state, the right? The problem is Dan and his spouse come to see me and we set up this awesome estate plan and I make a monumental mistake that we don't realize and a, a substantial $50 million estate passes to the kids and the government says, knock, 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 there's some taxes here that have to be paid. Okay, first of all, it's not gonna happen if you're lucky, 25, 30 years down the road, I may or may not be alive. So your sole recourse at that point is sue the lawyer who screwed it up. That's a low low probability that you're right. going to get much. But God help you if that property is illiquid. Right. If that um, estate. So you can't just, just sell and then, it and pay the government. And you get the emotional stuff too. And I again, I've had this happen. Mom has significant financial resources, but nobody has access to them. Therefore, she's got to go to a state home versus being able to be in private care. And that's hard. And it's hard to tell people there's nothing I can do. I mean, there are things we can do, but it takes time and money versus if you do it on the front end the right way, you have the tools in place. They're easily right. It's manageable. hundreds instead of thousands of dollars. In but it's peace of mind, Yeah. right? If, if you are sitting at, and I've had to do this, unfortunately, you know, assist friends with it. If somebody has to make a life or death decision, it's awful to have to make the decision, but it's incredibly comforting to know the documents are in place. And in my circumstance, it's also comforting to know that your lawyer's right there prepared to argue with the hospital or the hospital's attorney. Mm -hmm. you, in very emotional situations like that, you don't want the layer of complication to say, damn it, I heard Kevin tell me a month ago, I should have done this for my mom, I didn't, and now mom is here and I can't do anything for her. 
So yeah. it's I'm not preying on people's emotions. I'm just giving examples. It's of just reality. What I mean, life does actually happen. So you need to prepare for that, and you need to have those tough conversations with your family members to make sure you know what's what. So well, if, and to your example, you hear about things, and most people, let's be honest, you know, when you're young and starting out. You're not, you're not worried about a will. You figure you're bulletproof. Or on rare occasion, you know, you'll have a child, and yes, you're very concerned about it, but then you don't touch it for 25 or 30 years. And often what I'll see with my estate planning clients is folks will come in with a will, hasn't been updated in 25 or 30 years. We need to change beneficiaries. The kids are in their, 20, in their late 20s, 30s. Mom and dad, no offense, don't care about them. They're worried about the grandkids. So we need to update those sorts of things. And there are a lot of, again, there's tax consequences to this, and it's just fundamental planning. But the important thing is, I, like you, Brian, I'm not selling people. I'm just telling you, look, we're all going to die. It's an eventuality that we're all going to run into. The question is, what do you want your legacy to be? And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about how difficult was it for the survivors to deal with with things after you passed away. Because if you follow our advice and have a, a trust plan, it's seamless. It's just like having a life insurance policy. Oh, the difference between when people have it dialed in and we have to deal with their estate property, their investment accounts and right. things like that, if they've got a good trust situation set up versus a, a will mm -hmm. or if they've got good documentation and good beneficiary forms, it is lightning fast yes. for us and easy versus having things. But the key is, you, you, you touched on this, is that if you have these documents, like if you have, if you create a trust, you got to actually put the property in the name of that trust. We have to done. put the property in the trust. So. You have to fund the trust because otherwise it, the question of whether or not it's just a tax dodge. But we, right. we counsel our clients to do that. We help them do that. We put them in touch with necessary advisors to have that occur. Um, and again, that's, Sure, it's what I do professionally, and yes, it's how I put my kids through school and how we put groceries on the table, but I feel like I'm genuinely helping people when we do that because so many people come in and you start to talk, and nobody wants to talk about their own death, right? So during these estate planning meetings, it's always very solemn, and I often kid that I should play carnival music or something just to lighten the mood up, but they're significant decisions, and then... I'd say anywhere from 20 to 20% to a third of folks after that initial consultation, I don't hear from them for a number of months or sometimes ever mm -hmm. because they just don't want to deal with mm -hmm. the eventuality. And oftentimes they'll come back and we sign and just the sigh, literally the sigh of relief once we say, okay, everything's done and God willing, it won't happen. But if you die tomorrow, we run into the exact away. same situation. Very the, the the thing where people procrastinate the most with us is the long term care planning, or um, or occasionally if there's a life insurance situation, it, it, a lot of people just don't want to think about it. And like you say, you know, none of us gets out of here alive. Right, and stuff's gonna happen. So, um, but Dan, is, is there anything else? Any other questions you had for for Kevin today? No, thanks for coming by. So how do people get how, Dan? One of thirteen words. <laughs> Thanks. If people need to get in touch with you, Kevin, what's the best way to contact you? Easiest way is go through uh, the webpage, uh, CamdenLawOffice.com. We've got contact information set up. If you're of a younger generation, you prefer to go through Facebook. 
Google or Google, Facebook, CamdenOffice.com. You can message me there. Uh, email tends to be the best for us because we can get to it when we're not in the middle of other things and we can respond much more comprehensively mm -hmm. than text messaging or Facebook messaging. And all your information is going to be right there on the website. It is. Awesome. It is. Well, thanks for coming out. My pleasure. Appreciate you enlightening us. <laughs> thanks. And with that, Kevin has left the building. And Dan, it was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed hearing about his experience. And he has such a broad experience that it, it really, um, I, I feel like, provided us a, a little better insight about not only just how to deal with a, an attorney that's specializing in one area, but also how to get the most out of any attorney that someone might have to work with or might want to engage. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you uh, would like to give us feedback, you can reach Dan and I at Fierce Fiduciary on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have uh, a Facebook private group that you could join if you want to join into the conversation there. It's called Investing and Financial Planning for Beginners. Um, also, if you want, you can reach us at AthenaPrivateWealth.com. That's our company where we actually do the job on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, if you're just listening at this point and want to learn, the best way to support us would be to simply subscribe to this podcast. Please rate the podcast if you have the ability on your platform. And most importantly of all, if you get something out of one of these episodes, please, please, please share it on your own social media or let other people know about it. We want to make this as impactful as possible and create as much value as we can out there. So thank you so very much for listening. Until next time. Cue the tiger.